This is the Brew World Order Podcast. Welcome to the Brew World Order Podcast. My name is Mike Curtin. If you haven't subscribed yet, well, you're in luck, because now's the perfect time. This is episode number 34, and in this episode, I sit down with Matteo Rishaki, co-owner of Voodoo Brewing Company in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Matteo talks to me about how him and his brother Kurt really turned Voodoo around, how he crowdfunded the business to purchase Voodoo, and how drawing a line on the ground became a loophole for being able to sell beer on their property. Weird. I'm always drawing lines on the ground, but it's to stop people from crossing it. Guess these habitual line steppers just don't quit. Because Voodoo has been doing quite well ever since that line was drawn. Well, you know what time it is. Time to sit back, crack open a beer, and enjoy the podcast. Hey guys, I'm Mike Curtin. This is the Brew World Order Podcast, and today I'm with Matteo Rashaki, co-owner of Voodoo Brewing Company in Pennsylvania. Located in Meadville, Pennsylvania, Voodoo was founded by a single member in 2005. Around the fall of 2010, Voodoo's head brewer was leaving, and that's when Kurt Rashaki stepped in. Kurt knew they needed some help on the business side, as Voodoo was really starting to struggle financially. Kurt reached out to his brother Matteo Rashaki. And with their shared vision, it helped the business to make a turn in the right direction. Soon thereafter, Kurt and Matteo became owners. Many years later, they are one of the smallest employee-owned businesses and now have six corporate locations and a slew of franchise locations with more on the way. And Matt Rashaki's here with me today. Matt, how are you? Hey, doing good. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, no problem, man. So, um... Before you stepped in, what was the situation with Voodoo like and... How did you and your brother really, you know, turn the corner and make things change? Well, I think it's one of those kind of classic stories of, you know, visionary, you know, artist, um, you know, pretty solid, you know, brewing education and background um, with a, you know, a a fairly put together business model, but just a a failure to execute. Um, You know, there was a a lot of pieces here um, and, uh, a lot to work with, but there wasn't a whole lot of cohesion and, um, and full fledged thinking behind, uh, some of the practices here. So I know when, uh, when Kurt started showing up as a volunteer, um, you know, right away, you're kind of noticing some things and, uh, you know, obviously ultimately led to its, uh, near bankruptcy. Right. What moves did you guys start to make that made things work? Um, and one of the initial things, you know, my brother did was just getting into the brewery and, um, you know, working on, you know, refining and working on a lot of the different recipes. I know one of the things he wanted to do uh, right away was take the Four Seasons IPA product and, and kind of meld that into, he was a big fan of the West Coast style IPAs. You know, he was drinking Green Flash out in California when he was at USD. And, right. Um, he and I co-owned a bar here in town before the brewery. And he worked real hard on getting some of these um, offerings over here in Crawford County for the first time. And uh, just, you know, that style he really enjoyed and set out to, to, you know, work on all aspects of that from, you know, contracting and working with our hot vendors to working on the grain build to the water chemistry and what have you. Um, and that's just one example. Um, you know, and then on my end, you know, working with um, a bunch of the different uh investors we had an angel investor and a few other of our local uh economic and redevelopment agencies had invested in the project back early on and working with those different uh you know partners and 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 working on 
repayment terms and conditions that would be suitable to the, the business model. Um, and then really the, the biggest thing was having a, a direct to retail concept. You know, the brewery, you know, wasn't even doing 200 barrels of beer a year and, and trying to make a living on wholesale distribution. And it just wasn't a sound, you know, business model. So for us, you know, having this location on Arch Street, Meatville, uh, where the original production facility, you know, was located and still is today, um, you know, having a tap room and a direct retail model was really, I think, one of the bigger turning points, um, you know, from at least a business perspective. Right. So for you and your brother, I mean, was it always like a uh, thing that you were, you you wanted to be brewery owners or it kind of just like turned into that? Your brother, he was brewing, correct? Before he got well, there? Not, yeah, so he was brewing, but not in a formal sense. So he would come visit me in New York. I had started a business there when I was in college. And he'd come out in the summertime and we'd work together for my, my business out there. And, and we would be home brewing and, and working on some things and we had invested and bought this bar here in Meadville, um, turned it into like a craft beer bar. And we had plans to either put a brewery in the basement there, or we were working with some developers up in Erie on the Bayfront. Um, we even had a, re- a LLC registered called Bayfront Brewing Company, and we were going to do that. Um, but through this whole process, um, you know, we kind of found the way to branch out of the brewing business um, a little bit more expeditiously, if you will. Right pivoting your plans a little bit and making things work for you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was a great opportunity. And, and plus when you see, you know, the, the, the lending portfolio for this business predominantly being made up of these, these local, um, fiduciary entities, you know, I felt like we had a, a civic duty and responsibility to try to get those repaid because if you default on loans like that, you know, you're not only harming those agencies, but you're you're you know really going to put a hindrance on incubating new business in uh, an area which really really truly needed it at the time. Right. So I kind of took it as a personal personal responsibility, personal goal, you know, to uh, to get the business turned around and get those loans repaid. Right. Did you have to put any uh, funding of your own from from either one of you as far as to putting money into the business to make it grow? We, 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 we definitely did. So what we did as part of that refinance with all the lenders as well as to get the tap room kind of underway as well as satiate some of these, um, you know, um, AP vendor bills was I did – before it was really even a thing that had a name to it, I called up a bunch of my friends and family members and said, Hey, you know, I'm going to branch out of this brewing business down in Meadville. You guys want to invest, you know, it's, it's, it's X amount of dollars per, per 1%. And I basically crowdfunded, um, a new investment group, uh, into the business, um, which, you know, wasn't a traditional way of doing things and didn't even really have a name yet. Um, but it worked very well because, through my business in New York and some family and friends, and we were able to raise the capital um, and and allocate the stock accordingly uh, to, to do these things. It seems like a, a smart way of doing it. What is something when you first came into the business was, was something you never thought you were going to have to deal with? <laughs> um, well, I mean, other than, you know, rodents and other things that you don't expect to, to walk into on day one, um, oh boy. you know, there was... <laughs> There was a slew of things here in Pennsylvania from our archaic liquor law standpoint um, that were being looked at and examined and uh, 
for the first time in like 100 years, you know, altered, changed, modified in liquor code. So I spent a lot of time when I wasn't swinging hammers and, and, and running plumbing and other things, uh, trying to stay apprised of what changes were happening to all the different acts, like Act 39 when that passed in Pennsylvania. That was huge for us. Um, and what that did is it really kind of opened uh, a lot of opportunity for a lot of uh, retail-based, you know, bars and restaurants, but, you know, breweries, wineries uh, as well. Um, and that was a, an interesting piece. I had no idea it had to be so up to speed on legislation uh, here in, in the state uh, to, to really give yourself the, the edge that you needed to be, you know, out front of it um, and, and utilizing some of this. Uh, and it incubated some really cool projects for us. You know, our satellite breweries, we were some of the first, if not the first, um, brewery in Pennsylvania to, to use a GS license for a retail location. Um, and I've got a funny story about that I can tell later, but uh, as well as like our food truck program, we call them the foodoo trucks. You know, right. all of that was kind of incubated, spun out of uh, as a byproduct of these uh, changes in uh, the liquor code. Nice. Yeah, I like that. Uh, foodoo trucks. Very cool. What is the quality that you possess that makes you a, gr- a good business owner? Me personally? You personally, yes. Uh, I mean, for me personally, I think my my leadership style has always been to, you know, do the exact opposite of micromanage and try to surround yourself with people far more intelligent than yourself. Right. Um, and, and and let those people really, you know, thrive in their lanes. Um, you know, that's one thing I'll say about, you know, our entity, especially with being employee-owned. You have this not sense of ownership, you have intrinsic ownership, true ownership. And these individuals are already highly motivated. So if you get the right people in the right departments, they can stay and focus in their lanes. Um, you know, you've got something pretty dangerous. And um, I think for me, you know, being able to take a, you know, 50,000 foot view of that and set that infrastructure up um, to allow that to perform, I think is probably one of the things that I would say, um, you know, really kind of set us up for success. Right. Now, uh, your employees obviously mean a lot to you. Um, and you came up with the employee stock ownership plan, um, or ESOP. Can you explain that and how that came about? Yeah. So, um, the ESOP was a byproduct of, uh, finishing out the acquisition of the business from the original founder. Uh, it happened in like a two-part process, you know, when myself, my brother, and our, you know, we'll call them crowdfunded friends and family, if you will. That was the first dip. Uh, the second kind of completion of that project uh, was the exit of the original founder. And what we did at that point was, well, if you're losing a founder or a figurehead or somebody, you know, you've got to kind of combat that. And also, too, we wanted to make sure that, you know, we really always truly wanted to have our employees vested in a literal sense. So it was kind of a whole three pronged approach. So the, you know, the business was changing, uh, ownership. Uh, we also were changing our corporate structure. And then at the third time, we're like, you know what, let's get this ESOP off the ground. And, uh, we did all that in one big foul swoop, uh, back at the end of 2014. Nice. What would you say, uh, as far as lessons learned, the biggest lesson you've learned from being a business owner and, and from just situations that have occurred? Um, I mean, for me, you know, no, no business is, is the same. You know, I've, I've had a, a series of different businesses that I've started incubated or been involved in 
you know, since my professional career began. And, um, you know, I guess my biggest lesson learned was the fact that no business is the same. Uh, no two businesses are alike. And you have to really take a look and, and, and don't make any assumptions, um, you know, from one business to the next. Um, you know, working very well with a great financial advisor, CPA group, um, especially when it comes to things like excise taxes and, um, you know, getting all of your, um, your free tax stuff set up. I mean, that was kind of one of our biggest things was once you have a business that has not had to pay uh, any kind of taxes and things for a long time, and then your business starts to have be successful, you know, having the right tax planning involved with your advisors and your financial planners is really important. Um, you know, cause I know a lot of businesses when they start doing well is actually when they start failing. Um, a lot of my, um, you know, professional colleagues that I know, you know, they're just so used to, to getting by and then they have a great year where they perform and those years end up being the most difficult for them because of the fact that they might not be doing the proper, you know, allocation of expenses or, uh, planning. So I guess that'd be my biggest thing. And again, this is strictly for more of a, uh, operations viewpoint uh, right. which is really what i do here right yeah was there a defining moment of success for the business uh was there like that moment that stands out that you're like okay this is this is finally working this is going in the right direction yeah and, i mean we've been fortunate enough to have that time and time again um but i mean the first time for me was you know we we took this business over january 1 uh 2012 and by the end of June of that same year, six months later, we opened the taproom doors. And it was a single little shotgun, 3,500 square foot, small kitchen, you know, 65 seats. And uh, we, um, we went to open our doors and I went to the bank to make change because I kind of forgot like, oh yeah, we have registers and we need like ones and fives and quarters. And we went to the, the bank here and uh, we had $67 left in our checking account. No oh boy. And I took all that out. <laughs> And uh, quarters and ones and fives. And I said, well, here goes nothing. You know, talk about putting all your chips in one basket. So um, we went to, to unlock the doors at noon or whatever time it was that day of the grand opening. And, you know, the line went around the block. And uh, we actually had a one-in-one-out concept. And, and there's still nights during the week, you know, pre-COVID, <laughs> when, uh, you know, we have that same one-out, one-in type situation here. Uh, we've been very fortunate to be embraced by the community um, especially for a concept that was very unique uh, to our area at the time. So I think that was kind of a defining moment um, and, and definitely the first defining moment. And, you know, we kind of had something here. Right. And uh, you, you talk about uh, pre-COVID. I mean, how did uh, COVID really affect your, your business? Um, were you able to still maintain or was it like a, a huge hit? Oh, it was a massive hit for us. I mean, you know, we had a lot of success in the direct-to-retail concept of tap rooms. So, you know, pre-COVID, we had seven pubs, uh, right. seven, you know, concepts, if you will, where we had a direct-to-retail program, some kind, some form. Um, you know, COVID's really affected that for us. So we've closed one location permanently. Uh, we've closed our original Arch Street location uh, since COVID started because we have another location across the street. Uh, where our production facility is and has a much larger property and occupancy. So this has been closed. Uh, we have another pub that we are going to be leaving from a corporate standpoint here uh, right around Thanksgiving. So it's, it's affected us, you know, pretty significantly. Um, you know, our, our, uh, our gross revenues are down substantially over 25% this year over last year. 
Um, you know, but however, you know, being a company that's uh, you know full of uh, a lot of a lot of intelligent people, you know, we were able to very quickly pivot and adapt our entire business model from a direct retail concept to a um, more uh, wholesale distribution side. Um, and you know, we're up over 140 percent right now uh, from a production standpoint. You know, we've brewed more beer this year than ever before. Right, um, but. It's much smaller margins and um, a much more expensive way to do business than our direct retail because you've got packaging and aluminum and tons of labor and lots of loss and you're working on razor thin margins. Um, but it's been an interesting thing to do and a great kind of experiment. And I, I think it's something that's going to be uh, here when the, the dining rooms kind of come back and swing and whenever that is, you know, this part of the business, I don't think will go away either. So it will be to our benefit. Um, but it certainly had made us look at some projects on back burners and bring them to the foreground, um, you know, pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, COVID's COVID's been a real tough hit for us, and I think a lot of restaurants and and um, and breweries, but especially those who really went in on that direct to retail model, um, you know, they've been um, very affected by this. Yeah, I uh, I would imagine so. From when you when you first got to um, to Voodoo. Um, till now work work wise how how important is it for you to be there and how important is a mental break from everything i mean i'm a big advocate for for both of those things um you can't be an absentee owner especially when you're running uh an operation like what we have here um you know i have some really really great department heads and and mid-level management but they rely on you and you need to be around and you need to be here. And, you know, there's, there's days and times where, I mean, we've launched programs and done different uh, events and things where, you know, you're in there, you're in the trenches. I mean, you're, and you're right there next to your fellow employee owners. And it's a huge part of what makes us who we are. So I, I find that to be extremely valuable. I mean, you're never off the clock. I mean, even last night we had a massive storm here and, you know, we had power outages and our, our yeah. security systems were out of whack and, our production brewery still doesn't have power from yesterday afternoon, you know, but you, you, you're, you're never, um, you're never off the clock. You're on call 24 seven. And, um, when you, when you let yourself check out like that, um, you know, things, things can slip. However, I will also say, you know, I'm a family man. I have a wife, I've got three kids and, you know, I missed a lot of the early years for my, my earlier born, uh, my, uh, children, uh, here incubating and getting this business going. But, you know, trying to make time for the family and uh, allowing them to, you know, participate in what we're doing, but also, you know, to have some downtime. So I will schedule, um, you know, what I call kind of blackout dates and, and I'll make myself off grid um, periodically throughout the year. But they're, they're very specifically chosen times where, you know, it's and, and you prepare your staff for that. But it's very important. Um, and I think it's uh, something that, that everybody needs to do uh, for that mental break and, and, and opportunities to refresh and kind of connect with your family or with nature or, you know, whatever motivates you and, and drives you um, so you can come back and, and give it your all again. All right. So what do you think has been one of the biggest changes uh, for you in, let's say, the last five to six years uh, in the brewing industry? Uh, from the distribution side of the house, I would say, you know, competition to market has gotten, um, you know, very, very tight. Uh, there's a lot of breweries making some pretty good liquid out there and, and we're all competing for shelf space. 
um, you know, the importance of working with your wholesalers and your retail uh, customers, you know, working on the planograms and working on SKU authorizations and, you know, even, even if you can get SKU authorizations, um, all of these things, you know, five, six, seven years ago, it wasn't a thing. Like, you didn't have to think about it. You just, you sold beer and, and everybody wanted it. And, uh, you could get space for it. You know, now it's it's got to be you know an incredible brand with legendary liquid with um, you know fantastic artwork. You have to have every piece of this um, you know for it to be uh, attractive to not only the consumer but you know the retail buyers and your wholesalers. Um, I mean, there was there was a period where we were getting calls consistently all the time for people trying to pick up the brand all over the, the U.S. They wanted it for distribution, and and these days, you know, you've got to talk people into it. Right. Um, you know, we're very lucky, you know, that we have the brand and, and, the, and the the allure that we have, so we are able to secure great, uh, you know, wholesale partners. But I don't think that would be the case for especially someone breaking into the industry nowadays. Um, it's very challenging. Yeah, I would imagine so. It seems like a, a new brewery is popping up every single day. What's next for your company? I know there's many, you know, a couple of different places that are, are going to be opening up. But what, what's the future look like for Voodoo? Um, I mean, the future for us uh, is uh, pretty, pretty well defined. I mean, things can change by the minute, but you know, we've really worked hard with um, developing one of the first um, brewery retail pub franchise divisions, and we have uh, a, a few of them already in operation and uh, a slew in planning. And we think that it's going to be something we will continue to invest and develop in uh, for the long term. Um, you know, having some independently owned locations all across the, the, the U.S., maybe even, you know, globally, where, you know, you've got products, you know, available, um, you know, to new consumers, uh, new wholesalers. Um, and it's a great op- opportunity to get the brand out there, get the liquid out there. Um, and all the while, you know, just us continuing to, you know, develop and, and have great uh, gathering places, um, you know, at our own uh, corporate stores as well. Uh, so we're going to go pretty pretty heavy into that and, and continuing to uh, explore more of the distribution side as that becomes uh, a more uh, important and bigger piece of our, our business. Gotcha. And for you, I mean, I, I love this question. Um what was your gateway beer into the craft beer world? Uh, boy. Um, I would have to say for me, living in New York, uh, at the time when I was living in New York, I would say one of my uh, was uh, Brooklyn Lager. Brooklyn Lager? Um, okay. It, it seems kind of like a silly one to pick, but you know, it, it had this really big full-bodied flavor. Um, it had some, some, some bitterness to it. Um, you know, like everybody else, you know, as you're as you're getting into your earlier drinking years, you know, it's it's these commercial, um, you know, light lagers, and uh, it was kind of the first flavorful beer that I had really had, um, and and really, uh, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a good beer. Um, so if you if somebody came to you, which I'm sure they they always do, um, and asked you for advice on opening their own brewery, what would you say to them? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people say don't do it. Right. Um, yes. I, I'm not going to say don't do it. Um, I'm just going to say, you know, just you, you really have to make make it very clear that you have a great business model. You know exactly what that model looks like. You have the opportunity to change it 
and pivot based on things outside of your control. Um, you know, being willing to put in the work, uh, it's not an easy business, especially now to break into, um, you know, making sure that you have all the correct pieces and the correct people, um, you know, in those places where you need them. Um, you know, that's, that's the best advice I can give, um, you know, trying to get into it today. Gotcha. And, uh, do you have a funny story for us? Yeah. So I, I thought of a story as we were discussing. Um, so our, our second location in Homestead, Pittsburgh, um, it's off the waterfront and it's an old municipal building that we bought and, and we renovated. And, you know, we're one of the first breweries, if not the first brewery to utilize a general storage license for a retail pub. And, you know, it's, it was a byproduct of a change in liquor code that if you kept referencing back and back and back and back to all the different references, it basically enabled what I'm going to call a loophole for someone to have individual sale of malt and brew beverages out of a general storage facility, which was intended to essentially be like a warehouse space. Gotcha. Right. So talk to our liquor attorneys like, nope, you're right. I mean, if you follow the code back, like you can do this. So we, we went through it, built tap room. It was two or three days before opening and LCE comes in, does their inspection. And they're like, Oh, well you guys have like a, a, t- a tasting room here. You guys have a, have a bar and you're going to, you're going to sell beer. I'm like, yeah, we're going to sell beer. And, um, they're like, Oh, well let me get back to you. And so like a day later they came, well, yeah, you, I guess you can do it. You're right. But, um, we're, we're going to come back with the fact that we're going to say it has to be off-premise consumption only, which through a huge snag in our entire plan, you know, a whole year of buying a building, renovating it, you know, getting everything ready. You know, we, our beers in the cooler, we're ready for grand opening weekend here. Right. And we're being told that all of a sudden now we can only sell for off-premise consumption, which would basically be like growlers, crowlers, four-packs, six-packs, cases, whatever. Right, right. And uh, I had the brilliant idea. So I went to Home Depot. And uh, we went and got some painter's tape and a big thing of yellow spray paint. And we ended up uh, drawing a line from the front door around the outside perimeter of the building and right down the middle of the bar. And I reapplied with our, our licensed serving area. Everything behind the line was licensed and everything on the other side of the line, I delicensed it. Okay. So what we would actually do is customers would come up to the bar and that line still painted down the center of that bar. Right. right? It doesn't apply anymore. But at the time, it was very important. Customers would put the money on the bar on the other side of the line. We'd put the drink next to the money. They'd take the drink, and they would bring it themselves across that line on the bar. And then at that point, they're on an unlicensed area, private property, in an area with no open container law. Right. Um, so <laughs> we basically found a, a way to still, in the 11th hour, you know, open our tap room, um, you know, for, for lack of a better term, you know, under this uh, – newfound loophole yeah and uh it's a, it was a pretty pretty uh stressful yet kind of funny situation that we found ourselves in uh you know back in 2014 when we we opened that place up no yeah, that's using the brain in in a in a tight spot for sure so i have a a little segment called quick fire five uh five quick questions beer related ready okay, okay. uh one of your beers that you'd recommend someone try good vibes Good vibes, which is it's a West Coast style IPA with Apollo Amarillo Mosaic Mosaic and Galaxy in it. Um, it's one of our um, you know biggest selling brands, um, and uh, it's it's incredible. Seven point three percent ABV. 
Um, excellent branding. Um, it's it's a good testament of kind of what Voodoo is. Gotcha. Favorite brewery other than your own? Favorite brewery other than our own? Um, I would probably have to say uh, Sierra Nevada. I was just at their newest facility and uh, had some amazing beers and was completely in awe of the place. And um, I think it's a it's a great you know thing to aspire to. For sure. Uh, favorite style of beer? Uh, lagers. I'm a lager guy. I'm, I'm, I'm into the, the, we're doing a Fodor age lager series here. And it's basically the only thing in my fridge now. Yeah. Um, I've really gotten out of the IPA, especially the New England's. I'm not really doing those much anymore. So I'd say lagers. Yeah. Um, last beer you drank that blew you away. So I just did a, uh, event, uh, out of town in Ohio, uh, outside, uh, Newark, Ohio, uh, at a place called Dank House. And uh, they had this uh, this incredible like milkshake IPA on. It was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was like a uh, raspberry or watermelon, and, and it was just phenomenal. Gotcha. Uh, and you have one keg of beer to hold you over for a two week quarantine. What keg are you choosing? Um, I would probably choose right now our our uh, Fodor Aged Honey Locker. Okay. Mateo, that's all I have for you, man. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time, and I'm flattered for the opportunity to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you so much, man. I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew World Order Podcast, here today with Mateo Rashaki from Voodoo Brewing Company in Pennsylvania. Thanks, man. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Mateo Rashaki of Voodoo Brewing Company in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Whether you're passing through, you live in the area, or just visiting a friend nearby, you should definitely check him out. Also, give him a follow on social media. Every other Sunday, I'll be releasing a new episode, so subscribe, and you'll never miss one. Also, give us a follow on social media, because why not? I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew World Daughter Podcast. You stay safe out there.